Good morning. You may have a seat. Uh, glad you are here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Matt, one of the pastors here. Uh, it was the spring of 2018. The sun was blazing down a small village of Al-Kush in northern Iraq. The previous six days had been spent in the surrounding villages in the outskirts of the city that's now referred to as Mosul, seeking to find ways to help Christians rebuild after the short yet destructive reign of ISIS over the region. Cities where Christianity had once flourished for centuries now lay desolate, dangerous, and hopeless. And the team that I was with, though exhausted, were wrestling through the emotions of everything that we've seen from refugee camps overflowing capacity by twice the amount that they should have to messages written on walls of homes by ISIS soldiers describing what they had done to the families that once lived in these now destroyed homes. You could say a line of evil blanketed this countryside, and we were all beginning to ask ourselves, will this land ever heal? Will God ever avenge those who have caused so much harm to his people? In the city of Al-Kush, where we now sat, is an ancient city. Al-Kush backs up against this mountain range, and it looks out over what they call the plains of Nineveh. Now, the name Al-Kush may not sound very familiar to you, but if you were a student of the Old Testament prophets, you may be familiar with the important name of Nahum, the prophet Nahum. He was a prophet in the late 600s BC. He's probably a contemporary of Jeremiah, a more well-known prophet, and he's an important figure from Al-Kush. About 100 years before Jonah, the man who went to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the city not too far from this little village where Nahum comes from. And Nahum wrote to an Assyrian empire and a capital city of Nineveh, which had in a few generations lost the repentance that they had had during Noah's, uh, Jonah's ministry. Assyria had once experienced amazing levels of revival and had forsaken God in, in a most heinous fashion to become once again one of the most evil, wicked nations on earth. They sought to destroy God's people. And as we'll see in our text here in Esther chapter 7 this morning, God doesn't deal softly with people or nations that try to destroy his people, fractured though they may be. And so as we sat in this ancient village of Al-Kush, we're looking over uh, this destructed plains, the same village where Nahum sat and wrote this message thousands of years before. I remember thinking, Lord, when will you heal this land of such evil? And I popped open the book of Nahum, and this is what we read. Nahum, small book, three chapters, the end of your Old Testament. And I read this, Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you're like me, we've now been six chapters in the book of Esther promising that something's going to happen. And you may start to be asking the question, when is this God that Nahum's talking about, the God of action, right? He's going to show up. When's this God going to show up on Haman's doorstep? 
Well, friends, welcome to chapter 7. And so if you have your Bible, start turning to Esther chapter 7. I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. Esther is an Old Testament book. If you don't know where to find it, open up right to the middle. You're going to find Psalms. Flip two books back through the book of Job, and you will find your way to Esther. Just a short book, 10 chapters long. Uh, If you're not uh, familiar with how we've been working through the book, we've pretty much followed chapter by chapter. Again, remember, chapters and verses are not inspired. They came after just for our benefit of not having to explain to you where in the story we are at. Uh, but we're coming into Esther chapter 7. And so up to this point, uh, we are uh, seeing God working predominantly in the background, right? His name isn't mentioned And we've called this series uh, Fractured People, Flawless God for a reason, because God's flawless plan of redemption is at play, and yet the people that he uses and the people that he's restoring continue to display themselves as hopelessly fractured. So not only are the Hebrew people living in exile, living in a foreign land today, now they're fighting for their lives, literally, as wicked Haman's plan for annihilation begins to take place. And so up to this point, things have seemed pretty bleak, pretty hopeless for Esther, for Mordecai, for the Hebrew people. In fact, that is exactly the feeling that you're supposed to have this morning as you open your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. It's the same feeling that I had when I sat in that little town of Alcush and looked over the plains of Nineveh, the despair of how long, O Lord, will you tarry? How long will you let evil persist? And yet as I sat there in that town, if you keep reading the book of Nahum, you come to chapter 2, and chapter 2, verse 2 says this, for the Lord, this is the promise, this is the hope that we have when we come to Esther 7, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Yes, what is that hope? That God is faithfully restoring. He is a faithful and a restoring God. He will restore his people. He will conquer his enemies. And the story of Esther that we now get to dive back into in one more chapter is just one chapter of God's flawless plan of redemption throughout eternity of a fractured people. And friends, we, if you look around us today, we live in a fractured world, don't we? We have evil all around us. And let me just say this, while evil seems to triumph for today, let us never lose sight and cling to with all of our strength that though evil is present today, Christ has conquered eternity. Indeed, this is the big idea that I want to draw us to this morning, that Jesus Christ is our hope in all circumstances through chapter 5, through chapter 6, and here in chapter 7. Jesus Christ is our hope in all circumstances. So if you have your Bibles, hope you do. Esther chapter 7, as our text begins, uh, to display the light at the end of the tunnel for the Jewish people. Uh, And for Esther, as Esther now fully engages the king, King Ahasuerus, with her passionate plea to save her people. Today in our passage, uh, evil meets its match in the life of Haman. And we're going to see hope for the Jewish people here living in exile. I think one of the things, uh, one of the questions that we can have as we come to God's word this morning is this, has evil met its match in your life? Now, I'm not just talking about the evil that surrounds us in our world today, as prevalent as that is. I'm talking about the evil in our hearts. Has evil met its match? See, there is hope available for you this morning that is greater than Haman's downfall, as fun as this may be, right? That hope that Nahum pointed towards, that ultimate hope 
Not a hope of temporary relief from the hands of Assyria. Not a hope of temporary relief from the hands of Haman. But an eternal hope through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By his wounds, we are healed. That's the hope that we're clinging to as we enter chapter 7. So let's turn our attention to God's word this morning as we see God's hope for the Hebrew people being unveiled through Esther's confident intercession, uh, the king's enraged response, and then Haman's hopeless situation. I'm going to start by reading uh, verses 1 through 6 of Esther chapter 7 for us this morning as we start off in our first section of text. Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. That's the last verse of chapter 6. Now let's jump into chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it will be fulfilled. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If... I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Verse 5, then King Ahasuerus said to Esther, who is he? Where is he, and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And so this morning, we're going to draw our attention to the three actions of our three main characters left in the story this morning. First, in verses 1 through 6, we're going to see the queen's confident invocation of the king, followed by the king's enraged proclamation. Now, the king's good at making decisions when he's angry, right? So we're going to see another one of those in verses 7 through 10, which brings us to kind of this bigger picture of Haman's hopeless situation. So let's first look at the queen's confident invocation. So, well, this is the moment we've all been waiting for, right? We've all been waiting for this moment, these words, Haman's the man, right? The queen now confidently, skillfully, you could even say, invokes King Ahasuerus to take action to save herself and to save her people from certain destruction. And so the scene is now set where Ahasuerus and Haman and Esther, they're at the second banquet. Esther skillfully got them there. Uh, the king is extremely curious. He's like, what? What is so important? What's, what's this request that my queen has? And for the third time... The king says, I'm going to give you whatever you ask for, queen. Just let me know what it is. It's been fascinating how many verses in Proverbs, we've looked at a few, just seem to speak right into this text. Proverbs 25, verse 15 says, With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Remember back to Esther's first entrance into the throne room? of a planned banquet that she had already prepared. Esther was exercising some amazing amount of wisdom here and cunningness to get the king to the right spot, exactly what the Proverbs is saying. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. Esther's been patient. Now her time has come. So Esther's play calls throughout the last few days have been flawless. She had the wisdom of Solomon. She knew when to wait when to proceed, when to be quiet, when to speak. 
And her silence has served her well up to this point, but at this point, this is exactly the point that Mordecai was referencing back in Esther chapter 4.14. Remember this verse, very pivotal in our story. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, I want to take a brief pause here for just a moment, remind ourselves of a small detail in our story that I think could be actually very encouraging to many of us. You see, up to this point, Esther's essentially been living in secret, hasn't she? Nearly four and a half years have passed since Esther became queen, and her husband, the king, has no clue she's Jewish. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. How can Esther be a Jew without being compromised to keep her Jewish identity from her husband for four and a half years? How can she do that without compromise? I think the answer is she can't. She can't. And this, this is where we have to acknowledge that no matter how skillful Esther is in her intercession, we can't ignore the fact that she isn't a flawless Jewish role model. This is why I continue to remind us that the story here in Esther, this this isn't a grand story of who to be like, who not to be like. It's, It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts, but a reminder of God's flawless plan of redemption of a fractured people. And the kicker is, this is the hopeful thing for us this morning, is that God is using fractured people in his plan to redeem fractured people. How cool is that? Because I look out of the room, I see a lot of amazing people, but I don't see any perfect people. We are all fractured people. Listen, Esther didn't reveal or conceal her religious identity for four and a half years in Persia without making some significant compromise. She's not a perfect Jew, and yet the hope comes from the fact that God still uses her to play a significant, pivotal role in the salvation of the Jewish people. I wonder if anyone's ever told you that you don't have to be perfect to be used in God's flawless plan. Listen, this should be incredibly encouraging to those of us who find ourselves living in secret as if we're covert Christians in a broken world today. We do this in the classroom. We do this in our workplace. We do this in our neighborhoods, don't we? And Esther takes a stand, and I wish more of us would. Because you see, we justify our status as Christian consumers Watching the, the flawless big shots do ministry, the ones that are on the podcast, the one we like to listen to, right? Because we know that we're flawed and we think that God requires flawless actors on his stage of redemption. But you know what? Each and every one of us is compromised in some way, just like Esther. And guys, our hope is not found through justifying our compromise or justifying our inaction. Our hope is in God's justification of us through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope in all circumstances. If we were to make the habit of believing this, we would recognize that we don't need to be flawless to be used in God's redemptive story. We simply need to be faithful. This is what Esther's figured out. So Esther's called a second banquet in verse 1. The king and Haman arrived. And now in verse 2 in our text, Ahasuerus is quite curious about 
what Esther's request is. Let me read for us again verses 3 and 4. The queen answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If it had been, or if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. So Esther now begins unveiling Haman's plot by drawing the king into a situation from three separate angles. We're going to look at all three of those separate angles this morning. First, notice that Esther presents the situation as personal for the king. She knows the king. It's been four and a half years. She knows how to get to him. And so she presents this situation as personal for the king. The king doesn't know that Esther's life is in danger, but Esther does, right? Esther knows that the king's pleased with her and that it's not to his advantage that he loses another king within five, or another queen in five years. And so Esther makes this decision very personal to the king before she even states her request. So basically she says, hey, king, my knight in shining armor, I'm in trouble and I need you to save my life. Okay, so she makes it personal for the king. Secondly, she makes it personal for herself and for her people. It's here where Esther drops this bomb that she's a in danger of being destroyed because she's part of a people who are in danger of being destroyed. One could say that because of her identity, Esther is under an edict of death, and it would take a king to counter this edict and give her life. And if you're thinking gospel connections here, indeed, yes, there's a massive gospel implication here, and we're going to touch on that just a little bit later. So for now, Esther embraces her people, her role as the intercessor for her people, even though the king doesn't even know who those people are yet. And then thirdly, Esther presents the situation as a lose-lose business deal for the king. She pre presents the issue as, as worthy of the king's attention, not be, only because uh, of her life and her people's lives, not because that's at stake, but because the king's about to enter a lose-lose business deal as well. Uh, the language here in verse Four is directly tied back to Esther chapter 3, verse 9. If you remember, that's when Haman comes to the king with a similar request of how he's going to compensate the king's treasuries for the lack of income and revenue coming from the Hebrew people that he's about to slaughter. All right, so it's a direct correlation of opposites here, and that the king is about to lose a lot of revenue from these Jewish people. Esther's basically saying, Hey, man, you stand to lose a lot. Here, if you let this happen, king, you're losing your queen, whom you cherish. You're losing people like Mordecai, whom you delight in yesterday, parade, right? And you're losing a whole lot more. So Esther reveals that her life and her people's lives are in danger and that the king has entered a bad business deal. And finally, the king starts to pick up on what Esther's laying down here in verse 5. And he essentially says, who's the man? Tell me who he is. It's smackdown time, right? And so this scene, uh, it's, it's curiously similar to the scene that we see unfolding in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where Nathan, if you remember this scene, comes to King David, and he's like, hey, there's this sin. He, he describes this sin, and David asks with anger, who's the man? But remember, David asked the question, but David was the man. And it's very fascinating because here it's very similar in Esther chapter 5. Ahasuerus is the man. You say, wait, 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 I thought Haman was our chief villain. He's the one that we're, we're supposed to not like, right? Well, yes, but as much as we say that we'd like to think 
that we can walk away from our authority, you can never walk away from your responsibility. Remember that from back in chapter 3? See, it was the king who gave the go-ahead for Haman to annihilate the Hebrew people by taking off his signet ring and saying, Haman, it's all yours. I wash my hands of this. I'm giving you my authority. But he couldn't walk away from his responsibility. I think the king begins to recognize this because once we get to verse 7, the king now says, throw it up on the screen for you, who is he, where is he, and who has dared to do this? At that moment, I can just see uh, Haman's halfway through a gulp of the uh, the house white, and all of a sudden, Esther's like, he's the man. You can just like see the terror on his face. Maybe it comes back up into his glass, kind of gross, right? The cat's out of the bag. Haman chokes on his wine, and all attention now zeroes in on Haman as the chief villain that he is. And we can feel the tension in the room. I'll see how the king responds to this news. We're going to follow this line of thinking a little bit with the king's enraged proclamation. So as you can expect, everything the king's heard is probably not what he expected at the second banquet. Let me read verse 7 for us. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So, not only does the king take a moment to consider the situation, but Haman begins to recognize everything's falling apart. The situation's not very good for his health, right? At least the length of his neck. Uh, So up to this point, uh, it has been pretty clear to us, the reader, that even though Haman is being revealed as the chief villain, Ahasuerus is the complacent or the complicit villain. Remember, Ahasuerus is the one who paved the way for the annihilation of the Hebrew people, and subsequently his wife by giving Haman his signet ring back in chapter three. And I think the king's beginning to realize the lesson that he's needing to learn that he didn't learn back in chapter three, that while you can abdicate your authority, you can never walk away from your responsibility. I wonder if the king started to comprehend his responsibility in this situation, and that's why he left the banquet in anger. Well, why do I think that? Because up to this point, let me just say this, up to this point, the king has not, well, firstly, the king has displayed himself as one who can make decisions when he's angry and drunk. I'm just not saying they're great decisions, right? So he's not incapable of making quick decisions. He got rid of Vashti in just a moment, right? So he he can make decisions, but in this moment, either he's learning his lesson to cool off before making a decision, or there's something else going on behind the scenes here that he's starting to realize, right? And the text tells us that Haman knew that the king was going to cause harm to him before he left, so I don't think Haman was left wondering, am I going to squeak by here? No, the king had already decided what would happen, but he needed to take a moment. So the fact that Ahasuerus abruptly leaves the feast and goes off to the garden tells me He's likely begun to put the dots together and realizes that even though Haman instigated this entire situation, he was the one who authorized it and therefore culpable. Again, we're faced with a lesson that even though we can abdicate our authority, we can never rid ourselves of our responsibility. So the king was just as responsible for this plot against his queen and Mordecai and the Hebrew people as Haman was, if not more. So what's the king going to do? Does he he now kill Haman for the plot that he himself approved and signed into law? You see the situation that he's in here? 
So the king find himself, finds himself in a quandary, and I think he needs a second to come up with a solution. But whatever the king comes up with when he enters back into the room where they were having this feast, uh, he had his answer, right? Because ironically, Haman himself gave the king his final answer as if Haman was acting in his last role as the king's advisor for one more time. Verse 8, and the king returned to the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman, I just love this thing, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Wow, timing's perfect, right? And the king said, will he even assault my queen, the queen, in my presence, in my house? As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. So upon returning to the banquet hall, the king opens the door, finds Haman falling on the couch where Esther was. Not a good situation. Haman's fate's sealed. So Haman has, has given the king the very excuse that the king needs to execute Haman while also avoiding the awkward situation of killing Haman for the very thing that the king signed into law. Kind of interesting, right? And we don't know Haman's intentions with the whole scene on the couch. We know that he stayed to beg Esther. So maybe he's begging Esther for his life or, or maybe he's trying to cause harm regardless of whether Haman's doing whatever he's doing. He's falling down before the queen, right? Regardless if it's to plead for his life or to assault the queen, the literal fall perfectly depicts Haman's figurative fall before Queen Esther. So at this point, you could say, Esther has prevailed, Haman has fallen. The text says the, the words of astonishment leave the king's mouth and they covered Haman's face. We don't really know if that's like a literal, maybe there are people in the room with a, a, a bag that they covered over Haman's face, or maybe the, the words as Haman comprehended them and realized his destruction, that he recognized it and you could see it on his face. But whatever happened there, the lesson that we weren't learned last week, or one of the lessons, when God starts to move, he often moves quickly, still applies to our text here this morning. So let me finish our text and read verses 9 through 10 and see how this plays out. Then Harbona, uh, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, moreover, the gallows, I just love that, who starts a sentence with moreover? Apparently Harbona. So, moreover, king, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word uh, saved the king, mm -hmm, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet. And the king said, hang him on that. Perfect. So the, they hanged Haman on the gallows and he, uh, that he had prepared for Mordecai, the king's wrath, sorry, the wrath of the king abated. You gotta love verse nine, guys. Uh, Harbona must have been a politician wannabe because it didn't take more than a second to spot an opportunity. He's like, <clears throat> moreover, right? Oh, by the way, king, since it appears that Haman has tried to assault your wife, it, it, is now a good time to mention that the gallows that Haman had built in his, in his yard, oh yeah, the gallows to hang Mordecai, the guy that you just had a parade for honoring yesterday, yeah, that gallows, it's finished, it's, it's ready to use. We got the all clear. The inspector of gallowses came in and said, you're good to go, right? Permit sealed. Everything's good. So Harbona, right, gives the king Ahasuerus the perfect answer for this problematic prime minister that he had named Haman. Can't waste a good gallows. So they hang Haman on this very gallows, thus sealing Haman's fate. So as we come to Esther chapter 7, in the end of Verse 10, we, we quickly realize that, yes, 
Haman's fate is sealed. The king's anger has abated, but guess what? The book's not over. There's still a few more chapters in God's flawless story of redemption for the Hebrew people. And so we'll pick up on that next week. But as we close, I want to just consider Haman's hopeless situation. So before we wrap up our time this morning, I want to consider Haman's life, this hopeless situation he finds himself in at the end of this short spotlight in human history that he got to play a role in. See, at this point in the story, it would almost be possible to pity Haman, wouldn't it? It's almost like he was set up to fail. If it wasn't for the fact that he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent of his hatred, pull the plug on his plan to annihilate Mordecai and the Hebrew people. Right? Haman was and is or has been pride's poster child. Haman was a sinner who rejected God's plan and devoted himself to his own plan. In fact, if we were to stretch our imagination of what we could be apart from Christ and were to think about Haman in light of God's bigger plan of redemption, guess what, friends? Then Haman isn't truly that different than you and I. Some of you are thinking, did you just call me Haman? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. Listen, we love to place ourselves in Old Testament stories. We love to be the heroes, right? When the truth is, we're almost always the villain or at the very best, the bystander of God's flawless plan, and we're the ones that need a hero. I'm sorry to disappoint you, friends, but you're not the hero, right? You're not David, and the battle you're facing is not Goliath, okay? You and I are the Israelites cowering on the sidelines while our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the one fixing the problems that we constantly find ourselves in. Ask yourselves this, why are the Hebrew people in Persia to begin with? Because they disobeyed God. Why do we keep doing this? Because God's people, once again, turn from God's plan and try to come up with their own plan. Friends, well, you and I, sure, there's going to be Esther-esque moments in our lives. Make no mistake. But the problem is, you're not Esther. I'm not Mordecai. We're not David. And you and I, if we're perfectly honest with ourselves, we're the Hamans of the story. Well, the Israelites stand cowering hopelessly off to the side, waiting for a substitute, right? Each and every one of us has turned to our own way. We have all ignored or neglected God's forgiveness as our substitute. And it's only when we recognize this that God's plan makes sense. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of who? God is eternal life. In who? Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Haman had no Lord but himself, and he constantly boasted in his accomplishments, in his possessions, but boasting only brought about his destruction. Haman had a sad sad ending, but friends, you don't need the same ending this morning. So as we close, I want to point out one thing about Haman's downfall here before we conclude, because it's easy to look at Haman and think that he's pure evil and to rejoice at the downfall of of his destruction here in the end of chapter 7. And yet we should never rejoice when a sinner falls unredeemed before the feet of an angry yet justified God who gave that sinner great opportunity to repent. 
As I think back over the sites and some of the things we saw on this particular trip into former ISIS-held territory in northern Iraq, it was like we saw an example of what Haman had planned to do to the Hebrew people. Complete destruction, destruction of property, destruction of homes, of families, complete annihilation. And I remember the anger, even I could say hatred, that I had for members of the Islamic State who had caused so much pain. For those who murdered daughters, destroyed homes, devastated communities, persecuted Christians. And yet I had to ask myself, how can I truly find joy when a sinner like Haman is destroyed without turning from his evil ways? How can I hate someone for hating someone without becoming the very thing that I say I hate? Can I truly find joy when a sinner like Haman is destroyed without turning from his evil ways? The answer is no. No, there's some significant imagery here which I don't want you to miss because I don't want you to think that God simply used Haman as an agent of evil and that he had no chance of redemption because Haman had a heart even though his actions appeared heartless. Haman had a soul even though he appeared to be pure evil. If you remember back to last week, We pointed out the prophecy of Zeresh and his friends at the home, right? You remember that? They prophesied that if Mordecai was a Jew, then you will surely fall before him. What just happened? Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Haman figuratively and literally fell before Esther and the Jewish people, just as was predicted by his wife and his friends at the end of chapter 6, a few minutes ago. But Haman... He ignored the promise of destruction and continued hurling towards the gallows of his own making. So not only is this a sad end to Haman's life, but it was a foretold ending. It was warned, yet he ultimately chose to do things his way. And Haman chose to live in pride, not submission to the Lord. Now, I know Galatians chapter 6 was not yet written for Haman to read, but it's written for us, and so we're going to read this this morning. Paul writes this to the believers in Galatia. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one... Sorry, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, friends, Haman had no intention of doing things God's way. Even after he was warned, continued to do things his way, and this led to his destruction. So that's Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, We saw the foretold and predicted downfall of our chief villain, Haman. Uh, And here at the conclusion of our chapter, Haman's story is finished, but the story of God's full redemption for the Hebrew people still has a few more chapters as we're going to finish in the next two weeks. So Uh, As we consider Haman's downfall and recognize that we uh, can be susceptible to the exact same downfall as Haman had, 
when we go to things that are different for salvation, things that aren't Christ. Right, so as we consider this, let's wrap up this morning because I have three application points from our text to consider. Nothing extraordinary, really quite simple. And yet if we apply these truths to our lives, I think we will find them quite remarkable. First, as we've seen again and again, God is flawlessly in control. God's flawlessly in control. You say, that doesn't sound like an application point. It's more of an observation. Yes, but I think if we were to apply this observation and truly believe it, think about how that would change your life. God is in control through our characters into the text, in our text this morning and around the characters in our text this morning. God worked through the king's sleep habits last week. He worked through Esther's confident request of the king. Friends, find confidence that you cannot mess up God's plan. God can work through you or God can work around you. It's not lost to me that the world that we live in doesn't appear as if God's in control, does it? It doesn't feel that way sometimes. Yet if we were to live as though we truly believe that God is sovereign over all things, think about the difference that that would make in our lives and our communities. Secondly, the only difference between Haman and us is Jesus. The only difference between Haman and us is Jesus. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you were born cute, you didn't stay cute. Sorry. The only cute one in the room over here is in a, in a, in a car seat. Yeah. We've all fallen drastically short of the glory, and, and her mom. Her mom's still cute, yeah. We've all fallen drastically short of the glory of God saved it, and there is only one king who can save us from death, and we most certainly deserve death, friends. And that king is in Ahasuerus, queen is in Esther, his name is Jesus Christ. That's the only person in all of history who can save us from being Haman. So consider this deeply, friends, if you're tempted to celebrate the elimination of Haman in today's passage. Because in Christ, right, if Christ has redeemed, sorry, if Christ had not redeemed you or I, I want to drive this home, we would be standing in line to go up to a gallows of our own making by our own sin. So take warning, all of you who lived as Haman lives. Because finding your pride and your possessions, your, your prestige, your progress, your popularity, all of this will ultimately not save you any more than I can save you. So heed this warning. Your only hope is in God's provision. And then thirdly, find hope that God often works, sorry, that God often chooses to work without being named. I have to admit, I found some strange hope for this this week. Uh, that God's name isn't m- mentioned once in the book of Esther. I don't know about you, but I didn't see a pillar of fire this morning directing me to get to church. I didn't hear God tell me exactly what we needed to hear this morning, except that which was in the text. I didn't have a divine messenger or a dramatic miracle tell me anything this week. And yet, friends, this is the reality that we live in. God is largely unseen in our lives today, just as he is in the book of Esther. And friends, in a dark world, as dark as ours, we must constantly remember that God is at work in the mundane and the insane, even when he isn't explicitly mentioned. And so we must get really good at finding God, finding Jesus in both the mundane and insane moments of life. How do we do this? 
How do, we, how do we find the Lord when he isn't mentioned? Well, friends, God hasn't preserved his word for nothing. We don't gather in worship and scatter on mission every week just because it's fun and enjoyable. God has given us his word for teaching, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness. We, you, I might be thoroughly equipped for every good work which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has given us fellowship within this local body this local body of believers so that we can encourage one another, spur one another on through the mundane and the insane moments of life. And friends, I believe that God has placed you here in this family at this time for such a time as this. That's why you're here. So is God still speaking? Well, maybe not the same way the church down the street says he is. But yes, he's speaking to you right here right now. Let's pray.